Hi, Nathan. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Luke? Good. This is me being prepared and not being weird. You are so prepared. Our (laughs) game show notes were were awesome, especially finding the record button. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, we just spent 20 minutes being like, where the hell is the record button? So, ladies and gentlemen, Gomer here. Let me just describe to you how Luke introduced me and Nathan. Nathan, meet Gomer. Gomer, (laughs) meeting Nathan. Very professional. Shut up. Nathan is now a Catholic that works for Glen Mary doing ecumenical work. He was a Protestant pastor, loves Benedict and Balthazar, and dresses very well. Nathan, one time Gomer and I spent eight hours in rural Mingo Junction (laughs) eating 25 (laughs) cent wings and drinking $5 pitchers until it closed. It was awesome. Gomer, Nathan has to endure standing next to, I guess, me during the U.S.-Mexico game after I've been drinking since 2.30 p.m. I lead an awesome life. Here's the link for tonight's show. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to do that before I left work very, very, very quick. So, um, yeah, so I'm really excited to actually uh, uh, have our guest today on the show. I've known Nathan for a couple of years now. Uh, why don't you tell the story of how, of how we met? You, you tell yeah. it best. <laughs> well, um, I was pastoring uh, Church of Christ Church when we met, I think. And I, I don't know how I got a hold of you. You were working at the Archdiocese of Cincinnati at the time. And um, I think we got coffee, and I just felt like it was a little bit of a first date. And you told me on our second date <laughs> it was. that you always wanted to have an evangelical hipster friend. <laughs> and That's so right. I felt like I was fulfilling something <laughs> in your hip- life. Yeah. 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 It's and true. Then, I prayed for one, and I, I know, found and it. And then you were super disappointed. <laughs> you wouldn't even come to a Mass in which we were received into the Catholic Church, because I was no longer your token evangelical <laughs> hipster friend. So... <laughs> I know. I let you down. No, it was COVID. You sure? It was because of COVID, yeah, was, right? You blame everything on COVID. <laughs> it literally was in June of COVID. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I know. It really cr- Yeah, it was so weird because you. So, so yeah. So like long. So like long. I'm a story short. Like we became really good buds like pretty fast. And I can remember during our um, conversations, I was like, "Oh, this guy's holier than I am, and is going to convert probably pretty soon." Like, you just, you had, like, all the little, like, things there where I was like, if this guy doesn't convert, either, like, I have screwed this up or, like, something is wrong with all of this. Because <laughs> it's all about you. I was just going to say that. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> it was just so, like, you knew more about, like, Balthasar and just about, like, Ratzinger and different types of, like, theology. And it was great because he was, like, the one guy that I felt like got some of my protestant references you know and i mean i mean especially with regards like to culture yes. you know like you just can't and so um yeah so uh we became um fast friends and then uh you uh and i, I really like how you put it in terms of like you uh like you don't you don't i'm say that you're a convert per se but you're like a person who, who then went to like full communion with the church i always thought that was kind of interesting um thing that you said yeah yeah and i don't mean to be like too nitpicky about anything because it's a lot easier to say you're a convert rather than to say i'm an evangelical who's entered into full communion with the catholic church <laughs> through the rite of um, reception into full communion oh it was beautiful exactly yes yeah yeah um, but especially like for for a number of reasons i think it's important to have that mouthful um so one within my ecumenical work with uh I work as the director of ecumenism with Glen Mary Home Missioners, and I also work as a field representative for the USCCB within their ecumenical office. And the the audience that I 
primarily reach out to are evangelicals and Pentecostals. Uh, and the idea of calling yourself a convert within those settings is, um, is sounds much more like you're switching religions, uh, which isn't obviously what's happening. For those purposes, um, you know, I, I want to be sensitive to that, uh, not to make a bigger gap than there actually is. And also, um, my family on both sides are uh, evangelical Christians and very faithful people. I'm not jettisoning my evangelical faith that I grew up with when I became Catholic. It's, it's, a, it's a, a deepening and a living out and following for a uh, sacramental longing. And so, uh, and on the other end, you know, within our Catholic uh uh, lingo we typically just talk about having continual conversions uh you know the language within ecumenism is there's no ecumenism worthy of the name without a continual conversion of one's own heart so for a catholic it's very normal uh that's not normal at all for an evangelical so i want to be sensitive to that um and so that's that's why i go with mouthful rather than just calling myself a convert which would be much easier and but in that sense we would all be converts because we're always moving into a deep reading of the uh, sacramental life and converting to Christ's likeness. Um, so. Not me. I was converted in the womb of my mother. I was sanctified there. <laughs> I leapt in her womb. And then when I came out, <laughs> I was wearing a scapular <laughs> from scapulars.com. Uh, it was very nice. It was very nice. Wow. Wow. Are they promoting the show? I didn't know. Yeah. That. Well, last week they did. So I figured I'd give them a shout out. Since I kept Luke's ad where he mispronounces Merino wool, and it's become my new favorite thing on the face of the earth. It's like whiskers on kittens, raindrops on roses, and Luke mispronouncing things are a few of my favorite things. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Wait till you hear about my new obsession. It's going to be great, guys. Uh, Well, like, um, Nathan became, like, honestly, I mean, is like a person who I could be like, so this thing with an unprocessed, like, what's going on with that now? Or, or like, you know, because I was so, I've been somewhat removed from, like, of um, a lot of the current, like, trends and movements and just, like, and, and, you know, ideas. I'd be curious for you, like, what, having been on, like, you know, like, heavily involved in the... Um, evangelical world, which I think for the most part, and feel free to like, I'm telling me I'm wrong. When people think of like what's current mainstream American Protestantism, it's more of the evangelical non-denominational type. Would you agree with that? Or am I off there? Yeah, no, I think you're you're on something there. It's really hard to track the um, the non-denominational trends um, because they just the, the reporting for that is is hard to go by. Um, most of them that that does tend to be a trend within evangelicalism. Uh, so you might have a Baptist church that calls themselves a community church or a faith church or whatever. Um, so they're not like explicitly saying what their denominational affiliation is. And more and more are, are pushing for a kind of a non-denominationalism, so they don't report to a particular hierarchy, not that all of them even did to begin with. But what you're also seeing is you're seeing a lot of evangelical churches uh, partner up in particular networks. And so these are ones who kind of have a, a like-minded um, spirituality or a like-minded idea of mission. Um, but they're uh, they're doing it as a, a level of partnership rather than a level of saying this person is is making pronouncements upon particular theological judgments. Um, so you're, you're definitely seeing more and more of that. And within America, uh, evangelicalism is, is still, um, you know, that Catholicism are, are right there for one and two and fluctuate as to 
the biggest demographic. Yeah. So w- what drew you into the seminary for or in, and into the to become a pastor and all that stuff? What was the initial draw for you? Hmm, that's a good question. I haven't thought about that one in a long time, actually. Um, so I pastored. Asset. <laughs> I pastored for, I think, 10 years. Um, and I went to seminary at Asbury Seminary, which is in Lexington. It's a formerly Methodist seminary, but they're kind of uh, just broadly evangelical now, but still with a Wesleyan holiness uh, background, which is, it really came from a uh, youth group experience, which is, I think, normative for a lot of people uh, with an evangelicalism and uh, having a tight relationship with your youth pastor, but also being given uh, the opportunity to start serving uh, within that. So mostly did uh, music and then uh, leading different types of small groups and stuff. And so, um, yeah, I was uh, trying to decide between um, that and uh, whether to go into a music producing career uh, in Nashville and, uh, and you know, put both of good options on the board and, and went with uh, a ministry, so a theology and music undergrad, and then went off to do a seminary uh, shortly after that. So it was really just a longing to, um, to be engaged in that, and especially within that time, uh, the seeker-sensitive movement was huge within evangelicalism. And so your entire worship gathering is focused on those who aren't coming to church or aren't really interested in religion in any way. And at that time, I was I was enamored by that. I was really interested in how that might uh, bring more people to uh, Christ. And so um worked in a number of those settings. And I remember s- spending like four or five hours one day uh, setting light cues for the stage. And I think we spent 60 hours doing a set change that week. So uh, it can be pretty intense. So uh, I ended up kind of uh, through the work of a guy named Robert Weber, who taught at, I think, Wheaton um, up in Chicago. He had this idea of uh, ancient future worship, which to Catholic ears, that might kind of sound a little odd. Um, But uh, within evangelicalism, you're you're kind of, uh, you know, you pull on maybe some past hymnals or whatnot, but then you definitely pull on um, the influence of um, Hillsong United. And you're, you're pretty much waiting for Chris Tomlin to put out a new album so that you can have a new song in your in your set. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Um, but then with uh, with Weber's work, it really emphasized this idea of like, how do we pull more from the whole of our Christian heritage. And uh, I was introduced to that more uh, in undergrad, but I didn't really take it seriously until I started doing ministry. Because uh, what I felt like I was doing within these seeker-sensitive models is I I became exhausted. Like, you felt like your somebody's salvation is based upon your ability to be creative every single week. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, I, nobody said that to you. Can, can you give me a quick definition of seeker-sensitive for those who've uh, never studied that? Yeah, sure. So it would be that the worship gathering itself is completely focused around uh, a non-Christian person. And so what would you do within that gathering that would um, be something that they would feel comfortable coming to? Um, not just in a hospitable way, but in an attractional way. We're talking dirt bikes. We're talking go-karts. We're talking oh, lattes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, try to... We're talking that one extreme oh, movie with the girl from uh, Happy yes. Gilmore. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. So I mean, <laughs> that's a deep, deep cut there. <laughs> you could, you could do the amount of things that we did. Oh my goodness, I, I'm not um, this past life, but um, the amount of Beatles songs that I played on Christmas Eve, um, 
I'm not, I'm not particularly <laughs> proud of. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the time has come. It's a new BetterHelp read. So this episode of Catching Foxes is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? If you're a fan of this podcast, it's odds are it's either A, your job, or B, a breakup. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You'll be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's true. It's super fast. It's pretty awesome. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. I think this is one of my favorite parts of what BetterHelp offers, because if you're having, so you have like a sex addiction or you're, or you're struggling with what else do people have addictions to you know um jeopardy they've got the right people who can help you with uh in in the right areas and i think that's very very cool this service is available for clients worldwide so all of our uk friends you guys are good you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist you'll get timely thoughtful responses plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy and i know all of our introverts on here love that better help is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if you need to. It's more affordable than traditional therapy and love this fact right here. Financial aid is available. BetterHelp, that's H-E-L-P, wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Uh, I love this. It's over at betterhelp.com slash slash reviews. But if you are ready to go, go to betterhelp.com slash foxes. That's better H-E-L-P.com slash foxes and join over 2 million people. That is a lot. I mean, you know, not as many downloads we have, but still, too many people is a lot who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp, that's H E L P, they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. Special offer for Catching Foxes listeners, that's you. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp, H E L P.com slash foxes, and get 10% off your first month. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this here episode of Catching Foxes. I just want to explore this a little bit because one of my hobby horses right now is that there's a lot of parish reform movements in the Catholic Church, renewal, reform, whatever, that are implicitly or explicitly focused on a seeker-sensitive model adopting it into a Catholic context. And what I try to tell people is they, while seeker-sensitive ought to be uh, a, we ought to have a missionary approach to everyone in our community in in an age of people leaving the faith and being unchurched, even though they go to mass every so often or whatever. Um, the liturgy does not lend itself to a seeker sensitive, completely a seeker sensitive approach where essentially the, the, the way I kind of followed it from Bill Hybels and uh, Rick Warren and Andy Stanley, who I, I mean, I really like Rick Warren and Andy Stanley never really followed Bill. I've got a couple of his books, but the, um, the way they approach it is in America as a post-Christian culture, People think of church on Sunday. So if a, even if they're an atheist or a skeptic, if they ever go to a church, they would go on Sunday. So if you want, you want to attract people who are unchurched and who are seeking something, they'll come knocking on your door on a Sunday. So Sundays is for seekers and skeptics and outsiders who might be looking for God or whatever. And then a lot of these churches would say, well, that Wednesday evenings for many of them, especially down here in Texas and the Baptist, Southern Baptist, all that stuff, or second Baptist Wednesdays for the believers. Whereas for Catholics, it's like, well, the mass is for believers. Obviously anyone can come to mass, but to actually partake of the Eucharist, you know, you gotta be a Catholic in good standing, et cetera, et cetera. So for many people, the the Catholic liturgy presupposes evangelization, conversion, prayer, 
And so just to come in the door, it can be very alienating. So when I find seeker sensitive movements that tr- that try to take a Protestant model and slap some, you know, liturgy of the word onto it, I find it to be wildly disingenuous. So I don't know. I just wanted your thoughts on that as someone who came into the church. Sure, sure. No, I, th- I think there's a couple of good things that are important to recognize. So the secret sensitive model on the surface worked, uh, especially within the nineties. Um, but more and more, I mean, you do have mega churches who kind of still follow that model, but, uh, retention rates are really bad. Um, I, uh, remember, uh, talking to, uh, one place that I was working at, they, they were following the, the trends of the people who kind of came in and out of their doors in just a decade period. Um, and there were a church of, I think about 12, 1500 people, but in a 10 year period, at least what they could track, they had over 5,000 people that went in the front door and out the back. And so there are some ways in which, um, yeah, it might be attractional, but, um, it doesn't stick. And that can, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think that there's there's two things specific to the liturgy. One, that it might be able to learn from the impetus of the seeker-sensitive model or mentality, not the model, is um, how do you have a sense of like a seeker-sensitive hospitality? How, how do you, as a community, uh, be attentive to those who are, are new to that community and welcome them into it? There's ways you can do that. Um, just, you know, even within the liturgy, uh, not that the liturgy needs to facilitate that, just you as a parishioner and worshiper being attentive to that. And I think that that's important. And then secondly, um, so within within my work, I, I talk to a lot of uh, denominational leaders and seminary leaders, and uh, I've been told by so many of them uh, from different evangelical denominations just the the pull that younger people are having uh, to historically rooted uh, traditions of the church, whether that's Catholic, Orthodox, uh, the Anglican Church of North America is getting um, a lot of play within that as well. Oh yeah. And um, I've asked them, you know, what, why, why are they seeing this um, from you know their estimate? Because I'm hearing this from multiple people who don't know one another. And they're identifying just the experience of post-modernity is leaving people very untethered to a sense of uh, identity and a sense of foundation, historical foundation. And evangelicalism is really, really good in their bread and butter um, of that of that whole charism is to have that personal experience of Jesus, which I think is indicative of somebody like Ignatius Loyola or St. Francis of Assisi. But... Um, these evangelicals are looking for something that uh, will will keep them tied in rather than their own interpretation of the Bible, perhaps their personal interpretation of it, but being rooted in something liturgically. And so that you're seeing more evangelical communities interested in liturgy, interested in uh, the patristics. And um, so I think for us as, as Catholics, it's important to say like, well, you know, why is that? Well, modernity or post-modernity creates a rather ephemeral experience of everything within your life. And so things just kind of come and go and there's nothing with any kind of longevity or transcendence. And I think the liturgy, especially when you, um, you know, not when you just kind of waltz through it, but when you really engage with it, um, it is an opportunity to engage with uh, the transcendence of Christ, which is uh, uh, 
ministerially something people are longing for and can experience in a real way, uh, a felt way, through the liturgy. And so I think that there are ways in which you, as a, you know, us within our, our, our liturgies can take on the, the creativity and the imagination and the impetus of a seeker-sensitive uh, personality desiring for people to engage with Christ is, is kind of the underlying thing of that. Um, well, now within our society and the experience of post-modernity, uh, and I don't want to say it all as, as negative, that there's, there's goods within that as well, um, but it's leaving people longing for the, the experience of transcendence. And so I think that's something we need to consider as we, as we implement liturgical reforms or what have you. From a, a sociological perspective, I'm not sure if that's even the right word to use here, but the fact that um, the culture now, like if you look at the whole deconstruction movement, I think when I take a look at that, where, where, where a lot of that comes from is what you were talking about right right there. And you have the um, lack of, it's just not the predominant culture anymore. You know, to be like, it, we were in like the 90s and the aughts was kind of a period of time where it was, and I would say, you know, in the 80s too, uh, where being a person of faith here in the States just wasn't, the pre, wasn't always the norm. In fact, quite often you were then, most people had an idea of it, their their parents were, their grandparents were, but we were the first generation that didn't actively reject that, but we were we were um, one that was growing up in a place where it had kind of already happened from a lot of people's parents, really their, their apathy, I would yeah. say. And so you have this lack of a cultural inertia, and so it's just not the thing that that everyone does. And all of a sudden you're trying to be like, I'm tethered to like you're saying post-modernity and like, that's not giving you anything. And so what else is there to do besides try to find, I mean, like, I, I think you saw this when we had the guy, when we had the guy from, um, from under oath on, on the podcast, uh, this was a drummer, Aaron Gillespie, who's now totally, deconstructed. I don't know where he is now, but I know he he was as as, as about like two years ago. Um, and when we had him on, it was kind of like maybe like a year or so before that had, that had happened. And he was so fascinated by like, he said, I, I took this interview because I wanted to know more like um, more about Catholicism. And, and like hindsight, I feel kind of bad. I wish we had just kind of like made the whole thing about that. I know. And instead it was like, tell us about being a drummer and you're exciting. Tell us about you. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and yeah, and like, well, I mean, yeah, he didn't bring yeah, it up until true. like, you know, like, I mean, like halfway through. And I think if we had more time, we probably, I, I kind of wish we'd said, hey, you want to like go longer and talk about that? But I think I would do that now. Back then, we were still just like, holy crap, we got this guy on, you know, which I mean, I don't like, I don't think most Catholics understand how big of a deal that actually was at that point in time, sure. you know, like, so, uh, like, this is like the most famous rock, rock, rock drummer in the Christian scene. Like, it's not even close. I don't know. I, I kind of be curious to get it. Do you think that is coming to, the Catholic Church is that whole deconstruction thing. Is that unique to the Protestant Church right now? How much of that is, my, for the most part, I have seen a lot of things where they tend to start in the Protestant Church and it and it tends to hit us. It's at like on some point in time. Yeah, totally. You know, where like we we definitely are not trendsetters with like certain things, but I think it's more just because there are more Protestants. Well, not more Protestants, but there are more. Um, it's more in your face. Than I think the American Catholic 
churches in terms of the American um, zeitgeist. You see it first there, then it becomes more apparent here. So anyways, that, that's that's kind of a lot. Yeah, no. Good luck with <laughs> no, that. No, that's good. I'm, I'm trying to think of a way to, to kind of condense this. So um, the, the, the good that comes from kind of post-modernity and a, a non-foundationalist perspective is kind of to, to recognize contextuality. And um, so what a lot of people do when they say they're deconstructing their faith is they're not employing uh, truly a kind of a postmodern view of how they would do that. They're employing a modern view, a modernist view that I, that Descartes, I think, therefore I am, um, in their deconstruction. And so the problem with um, deconstruction, especially that you hear from people who are young religious people who are no longer that because they deconstructed their faith. The problem with it is that they never deconstructed enough because they don't recognize that they are still the ones as the arbiter of that deconstruction. And so, um, if they were to go all the way, then they're going to see how non-foundationalism actually might be working within this and that we can go and deconstruct, like I can deconstruct you as a person and how you're interpreting the world. Uh, so you never hear this from the, these you know, different artists or Christians who say they're deconstructing their faith. They recognize that, you know, historically the Bible can't be correct about X, Y, and Z. Or, you know, my experience was, was this. But it's always centered around the I. And that's the, that's the real problem with this, uh, with this idea of deconstruction within uh, religion. Uh, within our context, because it still is just truncated on on the eye, on the self, and what um, I I I can't make any kind of pronouncement as to what I think. If you know, you're seeing that a lot within evangelicalism, people, young people deconstructing their faith and saying, "Hey, there's no way Jesus was truly divine, or he was just a you know a good teacher," and you know. It's tough, too, because it's like you see the project and you recognize that it's like 150 years old and these people have just started engaging it. Um, and it's coming out of particular contexts, like they're maybe their own um, new learnings or maybe their own pain or whatnot. I don't, who knows? Um, would that happen within the Catholic Church? Um, I, I don't know. It'd be it'd be interesting. I mean, there's a lot. There are certainly some Catholic churches that look very Protestant and not just simply their how they function within ministries, but just their own philosophy of how they work. Um, the 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 movement that really kind of drew me into Catholicism was the whole Resourcement movement, which was kind of a threefold uh, Bible liturgy patristics. And within the those who are deconstructing their faith, they're really just pulling on their own singular experience and um, how they're mm-hmm. interpreting scripture. Yep. And so um, I would hope that maybe within Catholicism, you'd have a little bit more to pull from uh, because you would have a, a certainly a lot more to deconstruct, but then you're going to be recognizing that other people have already asked these questions oftentimes <laughs> long before you have, if you take the dive. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I can't make any pronouncements upon that, but I, I do personally. Oh, it's a podcast. You're fine. You, you absolutely I can't. I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> So uh, it remains to be seen. I would hope not, uh, because it's such a it's such a sad state of affairs for a lot of people. Because like, where, where are they going? Like mm-hmm. you know, it, yeah. The, I mean, from what we're seeing, the vast majority of people are going into this 
quasi religion of progressivism like i i often wonder if like in the past it didn't in the 90s and 80s it didn't feel like you had such a religious fervor like crusade type mentality on the left so much like they were kind of like yeah who cares man just do your own thing they're more libertine than kind of anything else and now it's it's a super doctrinaire mm-hmm. and i remember listening to this cultural moment and they were talking about it as the church lady of the, the of postmodernism is the secular feminist radical, right? And so it's so funny to mm-hmm. to see this. And I wonder if it's if it's almost like all these people who left their faith just imported a religiosity just straight into progressivism. Because a lot of them, you know, like when you hear the stories from from Gillespie, he was saying, you're told that gay people are horrible, then you meet a gay person, you find out they're actually great. You're told that atheists are the devil incarnate, then you meet an atheist, you find out, well, he's not a porn actor like I am, you know, (laughs) you keep going down the line. And it begins to chip away at all those scary barriers your parents kind of built around your faith or your community did and the boogeymen, they all come falling down. And I remember to saying to him, you know, or no, I was saying to the dude from um, Pastor Mike Has No Answers, you know, and we were talking with him from, uh, what band was he in, Luke? Uh, something with an E. Emery, no. You know, the guy from Bad Christian? The guy... The guy for the Bad Christian podcast who then like split up with the Bad Christian podcast. It, it was a whole thing. Yeah. Well, but, he said, you know, like, well, then I find out that there's all these different interpretations of the Bible, and all these different translations. And I remember hearing that and just being like, yeah, well, you know, like within Catholicism, we don't believe in sola scriptura. So we don't have to defend scripture from a purely, uh, basically tautological perspective, this is the word of God because it says it's the word of God, and therefore I got to find all these like sneaky divine things that are secretly in there in order to find. I said we believe because we we have a historical line of succession going back to the apostles, going back to Christ. So we have the church who gives us scripture and the tradition and all that stuff. And he's like, man, I never thought of that. But it it is funny that um, you you do find exactly what you were talking about that trend of. They're still using, in their own self-critique of their Christianity, they're still using these modernity. They're still using using the modern methods. And it's funny because I feel like evangelicalism or maybe fundamentalism is kind of stuck on this loop of answering like 18th century questions over and over again. Um, N.T. Wright has a lot on that. He's like, these aren't the questions that the Bible is asking. Yeah. Like, you keep wanting to ask and answer 18th century questions. And I'm like, yeah, like, I do feel this way. Like, some people need to hear the William Lane Craigs and all that stuff. They need that kind of reason. What's that? I, I don't know what you're talking about. William Lane Craig is a guy who goes around and debates atheists and stuff like that. And uh, Maffrat is a big fan of his, but he's an evangelical. Oh, okay. And so okay. Um, it's just interesting hearing. Okay. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, the, the like the post-modernity side of just being like, listen, you can't reason through everything and trying to see clear-cut reasons. That's a, that's an enlightenment proposition. And you find like people like John Henry Newman and all this stuff talk about, yeah, it's, it's not just this rationalistic syllogism that just leads you to one place. It's convincing and converging arguments and life mm-hmm. and experience and the fathers and holiness. And I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he said, yeah, who isn't, ever uh, convinced by uh, paper religion. Yeah. And so that tends to be, and I, I totally agree. Like one thing that I've, I've noticed um, maybe because it's kind of somewhat passe and 
a lot of circles, of, at least from my experience. But ecumenism, you know, my field, is a very different timbre um, than a lot of the apologetics that you hear nowadays that seems to be awash in different types of debates and whatnot. And I agree because, uh, you, you know, you're pulling on Newman there. He really, he, he has this idea of the notional and the real ascent. It's, I'll mess up the line, but it's something as, as if, you know, a man will, will be a martyr for um, a, a dogma, but no man will be a, a martyr for a syllogism or something like that. It's a sense of like, we aren't moved by these arguments. It's the, it's the compounding of these arguments mixed with our experience that really moves us into, you know, that sense of conversion and whatnot. I'm sorry. Uh, so getting to your point, too, um, with kind of this, uh, uh, you know, secular religiosity. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like a, a secular puritanism. Was it Archbishop Gomez had that uh, article a few weeks ago that created a lot of stir? But what I thought was interesting that I didn't see in people's kind of either engagement with it or rebuttal of his his argument and what he said in, in this talk, was, doesn't he end that with a sense of, um, you know, of, of charity, of, of how we engage these these new secular religions, as he was describing them, that we need to do it out of a place of charity, as the early church did as well. So, and, But you don't, you don't hear that as much in the apologetic sphere can sometimes just hear people thinking that they can argue somebody else into a change of belief, which I have yet to find really happen. It's helpful to continue to do that, to, to catechize in that way. I enjoy listening to those things because I learn a lot. When I, when I was a pastor, we did campus ministry, and I never, never saw that to be helpful to anybody, is to argue with them about these things, but to, to walk with them and to answer questions and to engage with new questions or raise new questions for them. And, you know, you're, you're going to be changed by that event as well. So, What was it for you? Can you, can you talk a bit about just your um, experience of becoming a deeper communion with the Catholic Church? Like, can, can you talk for a bit about, like, what— how did God do that? Ah, that's a good question. I like how you I like how you phrase that. That's good. Right. It's very me, right? <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people who have, you know, I started reading the Church Fathers and things just clicked with me. And it wasn't so much that for me. Um, I had engaged a lot of that in seminary. For me, and I, I hear this equally as much from others, is it there were multiple things, but one of the overriding things was a, a, a deepening of a desire for the Eucharist. To kind of get to that, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Uh, in 2016, I had some pretty significant health issues and uh, was all respiratory related, and that was then related to stress and whatnot, but ended up in, a, in the hospital for a night and then just kind of kept coming and turning into panic attacks because you can't breathe, and so then it just compounds on itself. And a lot of my work in ministry was to sing with music on, and lead our liturgies and also to do spiritual direction with people. And I couldn't walk from here to the door. And so it was a super intense time. And I uh, was re recall just praying like, you know, what does the Lord want me to do with this? Because you, especially as an evangelical, uh, have a, a strong sense of calling within your life that God is, is, has a desire for you to do something or to be about something. And so what does this mean for my calling? And any time that I prayed about that and spent time in reflection, I had a deep sense the Lord wanted me to reflect upon his beauty, which was not actually, you know, what I was asking to get an answer for. Um, it's, it always reminds me of the parable, uh, the paralytic laid down on the mat. It's like, son, your sins yeah, are forgiven. You're like, hey, man, that's great. Can I walk? 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Good, good, good. I'd like to be able to move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, totally, totally. And so I, I kind of followed that, and um, because I, you know, wanted to engage kind of theologically with my experience as well, I was wondering like who, who, who writes on beauty, and so that's how I ended up uh, engaging with uh, with Balthazar because huh. he was the only one that I could find at that time. And How- Stanley Harawas, who's a prominent Protestant um, theologian, he said, "I'm a Protestant without anything to protest." And that's kind of how I felt. Like I didn't really have any beef against the Catholic Church. I liked the Catholic Church. It was fine. Um, I thought of it probably as one of many options, but when you're ministering, you don't really think about this stuff as much. You know, it's like you're ministering to that person right in front of you. And um, so I started reading a lot of Balthazar and a friend of mine who was going through cancer at the time suggested I get a spiritual director. And I'd never heard that that phrase before. So he hooked me up with his uh, Jesuit spiritual director who I've had since then. I started going to this, you know, at Luke, this the Our Lady of the Holy Spirit Center in Norwood. And it's just like, your Catholic um, grandma's house. Absolutely. Your, your weird Catholic grandma's house. Yeah. And, you know, I was the, the only best. evangelical walking in there. Like, what are you doing here, man? So talking to these people. Can you really quick just explain, like, what was that like? Because this, so let me kind of like almost at the stage a bit <laughs> sure, here. Yeah. It's the old major seminary, I believe. And it's now a nonprofit where they collect all the, like, if like a church were to like close down or something, or if like a person has like a blessed thing at their house, they will take it. So it is filled with statues and stuff and an old church and rooms. And so there are like retreats. There's a lot of Hispanic ministry that is done there. They have, they have, you know, like adoration. There's like a red carpet in the, the church. And there's like a hallway with just a bunch of statues from the Stations of the Cross. It feels like one of the like weeping angels from Doctor Who. <laughs> it is the weirdest place to get lost in or to like be there at night when all the lights are out. Because it's just like there's just statues and paintings and things everywhere. And none of it matches. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so, okay. I'm sorry. I'm gone. Well, I had no, maybe no real context at that time for how uh, of a mishmash that might have been. Um, you know, mm-hmm. evangelicalism yeah. and places that I was working in was either iconoclastic or just warehouses. And so to have any kind of religious art was, uh, you know, quite out of the ordinary for my experience. You know, I've a, met a few um, Franciscans there and I'm like, I've never talked to a monk before, interesting, or a friar. And so I got to experience that. I had this really interesting experience too. Is is, so is I think I had just gone to Gethsemane on a spiritual retreat um, where Thomas Merton lived. Maybe had been reading Seven Story Mountain at the same time because you know again I couldn't really walk too far, so I was doing a lot of reading. Following this desire to experience beauty and experience God in, in his beauty, I've always been attracted to Van Gogh's art. They had a exhibit of his art uh, in Cincinnati uh, that January. So this was probably six months after my initial hit with this uh, illness. I saw this this image. It was two strangers in the undergrowth or something. I could, could look it up and somebody will, will know what it is. But I was, I was looking at this and I was just kind of enamored by this picture and thinking about how from this place of... Uh, thinking of it with with Balthazar, like a sense of a transcendental, this sense of beauty is analogously an experience of God. And at the same time that I was looking at this analogy, there was somebody, and so the Cincinnati Art Museum is just like a cavernous place. And somebody was having a a psychotic episode somewhere within within the uh, museum. They were just screaming. And it reminded me a lot of a woman who went to our to our church at that time. She had Tourette's, and she would just shout out in the middle of service. And I just thought, wow, what an interesting thing. Like, I'm in the middle of both this uh, this sense of depravity hitting you in the back of the head, 
and then a sense of God's transcendence in the beauty of Van Gogh's image. And so this hmm. this sense of like that being indicative of my Christian experience at that time and how God was calling me, it continued to lead me on on this path. And you know, I, things became the the stress levels became really high within within my work. Ultimately, just for uh, numerous reasons, ended up leaving that work, but not really knowing where. I was going to go. Bounced around a number of evangelical churches, but what was really interesting in this time when we when we left? So Jensen, Robert Jensen, is a, a really fabulous uh, Lutheran theologian. He points out that in the scriptures, that it's kind of uh, distinctive to say that Jesus is either you know John six within the within the bread within the elements, um, or within the body of Christ. Is the numerous analogies that that Paul draws, and we felt really cut off from our evangelical community. And in a way, I think that we felt cut off from Christ in that uh, because we weren't experiencing him in that uh, Christian community. And so at that same time, the Lord, I believe, gave a uh, a deeper longing f- for the experience of him within the Eucharist. I mean, it was literally like I wasn't drinking enough water was the was the kind of longing. And I remember going to a few Baptist churches and being like, hey, we're gonna, when are we taking communion? You know, it's like probably next quarter. Yeah, so we kind of just followed that longing, ended up, uh, I, I had been doing some, some ecumenical work just on my own. That's how Luke and I actually, I think, got first in contact with one another. And um, met some. So um, then your conversion stalled for years and years. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. You're like, good Lord, I thought this man loved Jesus in the Eucharist, not the U.S. men's national team. <laughs> <laughs> All he talks about is how they didn't make the World Cup and how he's just so upset and some podcast he has. Scarves, scarves. <laughs> Forget scapulars with merino wool. Scars, scarves. Aren't you paid by a group to... (laughs) Aren't you paid by a group to try to evangelize others? No! To hear myself process things. That's what I'm doing. When we went to that U.S. Women's National game, like I had two shows going on, on the field and right next to me. So it was was delightful. (laughs) (laughs) When you put... When you cut in line for drinks with me, I couldn't look at the people behind us. The amount of profanity that I heard laced towards us was quite extreme. I'm glad I didn't bring my son. <laughs> I didn't even notice. Oh, my notice. goodness. I, I, I just go. You've got to understand. It was halftime. There's a gigantic line. And I just walked right. And there's like where people like leave to get drinks. I just walked right up through there and yeah. got some. Just to, just to clarify that line where people leave to, you know, once they get their drinks, that's called the exit. And there was a sign that says exit. And we just like barreled. <laughs> right through it and the dude behind us i've been drinking enough that i was like i've got confidence <laughs> you did and they didn't they didn't ask us anything we just got we got our drinks and we we're good to go. thanks i already paid the guy behind me he's picking up the tab <laughs> no kidding. oh man well that guy over there is sea bass <laughs> no kidding he would have killed us he absolutely would have killed oh, us that's so fun. i just went to uh, uh an nfl football game i went to the texans the other day and uh, on also known as sunday and it was good fun went with the bork family and pro- took my whole family and it was it was awesome but then uh I, every time i got up i was like well i gotta go get a beer because i gotta wait in line for six hours and then you realize that the beer costs more than, I don't know, I think my monthly loan on my car, uh, and it's a regrettable decision. But when you're just sitting down and you're waiting for actual action to take place on a football field, which 
takes forever in between downs uh, with little kids crawling all over you. <laughs> it it um, really does. Yeah, yeah. You you're willing to pay anything to make that pain go away. <laughs> it was funny. I I'm not gonna lie. Um, may have been drinking since like the afternoon, two two thirty, the mid to late afternoon. <laughs> so I was like, whatever. I don't know. Oh, I, I mean, I'm not saying that, like I forget everything because it wasn't like it, 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 it wasn't. I hydrated myself. I was very careful to hydrate, and that it was a, that as Auntie says, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So I was very controlled yes. in it. But like, it's not like I remember like everything. Like it was just the most um, sobering experience of my life. At one point in time, when they score, I just remember like grabbing you and Anthony. And like jumping, and I don't know what happened. <laughs> I'm so happy. Well, you ate like two gallons of popcorn too, so you know that catches a lot of it. I feel like, so, uh, That's the Luke I love. I was handing it out to everyone. Absolutely. I didn't realize that when somebody's when you know your team scores a goal, everybody customarily throws their beer in the air, and like I was absolutely so got drenched. And I was thinking, man, if I get pulled yeah. over, and I like. They're they're not going to believe me. It's going to be terrible because I like <laughs> had to get my coat off right into the washing machine. You know, I was glad they won, but it was miserable. <laughs> I was so happy. It was the best day of my life. <laughs> that's like that's like one of my favorite things when beers just like talk on you and stuff. People just like yeah. happy. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah no, no, it's fine, it's fine. No, but like this, is, it was just so like it's just joy, it's just joy. You know, I I love it, I love it. Beer, um, I just love it when men pour their beer <laughs> on me. Ah, oh. <laughs> I beer. There was, I'm not kidding. There was beer that got into my cup, and I just drank. Oh, are you serious? Mercy. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> I mean, I just remember like there was there's a little bit more in here <laughs> than there was before. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Like, uh, Omicron, Shmomicron, gulp, 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 gulp. <laughs> this is a once in a lifetime thing. Again, I, I think I was a, I was aware enough <laughs> the whole day to be like, this is once in a lifetime. I am just going to live this up. Nathan, this is what we call part of this is what we call the the Franciscan guilt around drinking, where you you don't just want to say I got drunk during the game. You you got to thread the needle certain ways. So you say things like I, I was well hydrated. I ate gallons of popcorn. It's a marathon, or yeah, marathon, not a sprint. And then you're like, well, you know, I was aware of things. Occasionally, I was aware of things. So that means I still had the use of my reason. So take that, Thomas Aquinas. I was telling Aaron this earlier. No, we'll get back, we'll get back to, you, back to you know you and your amazing story, Nathan. Yeah, uh, I remember one point in time, Anthony. He turned to me, and goes, "Man, Amusa's is having a great game." I'm like, "Oh yeah, mm, sure is." I have no idea. I'm just happy about what's going on. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a terrible friend. It was wonderful. <laughs> he shows up, and I'm like, "Hey, I've been drinking. Come on, let's go." I'm here to talk to you about a company that I'm super happy is doing another ad with us because our coffee is so darn good. The Redacted Coffee Company is back. The Redacted Coffee Company specializes in premium small batch coffees that are roasted to your order. This means the coffee you order is roasted the same day it is shipped to you. It smells so good. Ensuring the freshest possible coffee delivered directly to your door. I love them so much. Their coffee beans are ethically and substantially sourced, which is great. They prioritize ensuring farmers are are not exploited, thank God, and are paid more than a living wage for their work. Oh my gosh, it's like they're doing what we should all 
actually be, be doing it, treating human beings like human beings. Redacted's coffee beans are processed in an environmentally responsible way that does not waste water. They only ship inside the U.S. and Canada, both because of the freshness factor and also out of concern about companies trying to be everything to everyone in the name of profit. They don't do K-Cups because K-Cups are wasteful, destructive, and produce inferior cups of coffee. This is known. Redacted Coffee Company is employee-owned because that's the ethical thing to do. For the promo code, okay, okay, look, you guys know how sensitive I am, and I get it. You all like Gomer when you first when you first get on here because you saw a lot of talk. He's a Catholic speaker. He says the things that you want to say. But deep down, after like six or seven times you listen to our show, you start to like me a little bit. Maybe let's not let's hop off the Catholic speaker train hype and let's support the podcast guy, the real podcast guy, not the not the speaker guy who's got a podcast, but the guy who actually likes podcasts and does podcasts and created the podcast that you are listening to right now. Gomer and me created it, but I had the thought. So if you love me, catching foxes, actually all of you, because you're catching foxes, um, listener, will get 25% off your purchase, but you have to choose your loyalty. You have to use either one of two promo codes, Team Luke or Team Luke at checkout. No, there isn't a limit on the number of times you can use Team Luke. Yes, this is a popularity contest. So go and find Redacted Coffee, and I'm going to type in their website while I'm talking because I didn't get it before I started to read the cop, read the read the copy. It's RedactedCoffee.com. The coffee.com, and I love this fact too. Actually, they're a veteran-founded company. RedactedCoffee.com. Get some great coffee if you're in the U.S. or in Canada. But truly, though, all our catching foxes, I'm the listeners. You guys will get 20 percent off every time you buy a thing from RedactedCoffee.com if you use the promo Team Luke or Team Gomer, all one word at the checkout. Thank you once again to our dear friends at Redacted Coffee Company for sponsoring another episode of Catching Foxes. How did you get into uh, Benedict and his writings? Was it at the same time as Balthazar? Are you reading this stuff kind of all together since they're all novel theology? Um, I don't think so. I don't know how I started reading him. And I've honestly not read as much of him as I have Balthazar. What, what have you read of um, Balthazar? What specifically? Tell me right now. You got five um, seconds. His, uh, so the, the glory of the Lord, obviously that's kind of what he's talking about with, with beauty, was um, the, the first thing that I read of his and actually got a reading group together at our evangelical church to read through the glory of the Lord together. Wow. I'm like, this guy's amazing. Have you ever heard that's of this awesome. dude? That's like, awesome. Hans Urs von Balthazar. That's like, who's this dude? Old Balthazar. And so... Exactly. Uh, and so read uh, a good bit of him and um, what what else did he have? Uh, Credo, Dare We Hope. I'd have to look at my, uh, what he, he did one on Gregory of Nyssa. He did a writing on um, Maximus the Confessor, which was fantastic. And you read that? Mm-hmm, yeah. And then uh, he has a really great little, I can't remember the name of it right now, it's like a short little essays that he did. Um, and one of it was like, why I'm still a Catholic. And I remember thinking, this is really interesting. Like, you know, I've not ever thought about these things as like it being an identifier. And obviously I had no sense of context of what, you know, he was engaging with at that time. And he probably wrote that in the seventies. I, I really don't know, but yeah. So he was the, he was my first entry point, um, into any kind of contemporary Catholic writing. Benedict has been, he seems to be somebody, a lot of uh, the theologians I work with, work with his work. And so um, seemed rather apt to be spending more time on him than say like a Rahner at the moment, although Rahner seems interesting, but Ratzinger is the one that seems to be the point of emphasis at the moment. It's it's really funny. I don't know if I ever told this to you or not, but like, I know that I, I'm joked about this. I joked about this earlier but when we first met you told me like what you what you were reading and what you were like that idea of like the importance of beauty 
and the different stuff that like you had shared of like where your heart was because you really had a heart to like serve truly like serve leaders and you spoke with such a um, a reverence and understanding of the importance of the sacramental life and the importance um, of the liturgy. And I think, and you were, you were still in your job as a pastor. So you're not at the point in time, like you didn't say anything about like, I might become, I'm Catholic. I think you had started going to a spiritual director though at that point in time, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause I remember being like a Jesuit, um, um, but uh, (laughs) I know you're not (laughs) kind of, (laughs) so, um, and, but I like 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 way you talked about God, and the way they talked about like your relationship with Him and how that impacted like you and um your family and and the stuff that you were reading and the insights that you had about that. I remember having this thought of like, oh, this guy's gonna convert. Like it, there was just like there was like zero doubt in my mind hmm. that at some point in time that was gonna happen because it was just all kind of there. It was all happening. It was all kind of heading towards. Um, and you know, and I don't want, I don't, I don't want to say that like, it's like that, you know, it is a formulaic thing, but it just, the, I could see like the seeds were there and I remember just being like, oh, there's a reason why God's put this person like in my life. Hmm. And I, I don't want you to think that I was like, and I was the one who then like, I'm led you into did. the church. It's, 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 I'm not that, but I, I just knew that like, I was like, oh, I remember being like really, I'm grateful that we were able to connect because we just like clicked on like, you know, like all these different um, levels. And I think I saw that I was like, like when he does convert. I have a feeling we'll be doing stuff together for like a long time. And I don't know like what context or like what that's going to be or, you know, all that stuff. And I still, I still feel like, like you're one of those people in my life that I feel like is always going to kind of like be around in like some capacity, you know, all of a sudden then like you call me up and go, Hey, tell me about this job at Glen Mary. And like, right as you said that, I I remember like, Oh my gosh, you'd be perfect for it. Like, like, I think I even, I think that was the first thing out of my mouth. Just, um, explain not like what you do, but like, why does Glen Mary have this job? And then why did you decide to like do it? And then we can talk a bit more about like what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. So, um, what was interesting, like, cause I, I've had people say that about me, like, Oh, well, you know, of course you're, you're Catholic now or whatever. I had people at our church who like, when I told them, they're like, I guess they had like a bet going as to how long it was going to take. <laughs> you tell me that. And, yeah. um, but what was interesting, like I, I, I've reflected on that time, like when you and I were connecting and whatnot. And I remember going to a mass, uh, you know, long before I was become Catholic, uh, at the Holy Spirit Center with, uh, with this sweet little Italian lady who I befriended, who was the librarian there, Linda. And, um, mm-hmm. the reading was, uh, was it, I think, Ignatius of Antioch. And he had the whole line, like, you know, absent the bishop is, uh, you know, absent the church or, you know, whatever that line is. And I remember thinking, huh, that's really interesting. I've never heard that before. I'm a pastor. I guess I'm a bishop in this context. It just, it just, you, know, you, you literally have no frame of reference. People use yeah, that as an yeah, argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, oh, well, you know, you have to have the bishop for it to be the church. I had no frame of reference for what that even was. Mm-hmm. I assumed, you know, mm-hmm. the, the pastor mm-hmm. was acting in that capacity. And so I was operating with a kind of invisible ecclesiology. Uh, one in which we're united through our common confession, mm-hmm. but not 
like I, I didn't, it wasn't that I was against structural unity. I literally didn't know what it would look like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was working within uh, a non-denominational kind of setting. Um, and we worked with a lot of different churches. And so I had seen a lot of gifts from learning uh, of those other churches and how they're helping other people or growing in holiness and whatnot. So I just kind of saw it's the same thing. When the longing for the Eucharist really uh, started to take shape within uh, my life and my wife's, I did not know at all what that meant for me professionally um, because I, I actually just thought it was professional suicide. And so I was looking into law school. I was looking into um, I did a tech boot camp because like, well, I got yeah, to provide for my family. And so you were about to learn to code. Oh, I tried. I'm horrible at it. Um, I would have done. Something. Have you ever heard that phrase? Learn to code. So it's this, it's this thing that literally it'll kick off Twitter. If you say learn to code because, <laughs> Oh, I did not. So know this essentially one. there was this report of all of these blue collar workers losing their job by technology, big tech. And the CNN reporter reporting on it said, well, you know, at, you know, maybe they can go out and learn to code. And it's like these 60 year old factory workers are going to learn yeah, to really? code. Like how callous <clears throat> can you be? So it became this comment that took on a life of its own. And then when a bunch, I, I can't remember the story, but it was like, a, I don't know, it's something incendiary and it's all involved in politics, but uh, a, someone was losing their job. I don't know, some liberal person in the media. And so all of these Twitter people mm-hmm. jumped on the hashtag learn to code in retribution, kind of like, oh, well, you fancy ups are liberal. Like, why don't you learn to code? And then Twitter just started banning people left and right if you use that um, if you use that phrase. And it, but it is funny because I did the same thing. I thought I was going to lose my job in youth ministry. There was a downturn in 2018. I was a middle school youth minister, or uh, 2008. I was a youth minister at the time. I was freaking out. And uh, now, thank God, I lived in Houston, and the oil industry just made more money during that time. But uh, <laughs> thank you, foreign wars. Um, but the uh, <laughs> you drove the price of oil sky high. Uh, <clears throat> my parish has never been richer. Um, <laughs> but I freaked out, and I bought a Lynda.com membership, and I was like, I'm gonna. I was just talking about this, Father David, today. I'm gonna learn to code, which shows you're serious. Yeah, <laughs> I, I spent money on that membership, twenty nine a month, and I went and for days and days and days i would fire up my my text editor and try to co- and i'm like nothing is working <laughs> like nothing was resolving nothing was going through and i got so frustrated with it i was like well i'll just get a squarespace website well and there you go that's where you need to go anyway and that was my yeah. life that was my life well absolutely no I, I just it's sheer panic though right like the the thing that terrifies me i think about this all the time like if if i'm put in a position there's a um, mike Iaconelli who founded youth specialties um, wrote a, an article called Getting Fired for the Glory of God. And he said, it is very easy to play the youth ministry game where you're doing event after event after event and kids are happy, but they're not learning. They're not discipling. They're not being discipled, you know, all this stuff. And he said, and here's the deal. The moment you start discipling, parents will start complaining, my kid isn't having any fun. But you know, like, you, you do what you can to make it fun and interesting and interactive. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you're forming them morally. You're forming them in, forming them in spiritual living and all this stuff. At the end of the day, you can't just make everything about Christianity entertaining. You have to just teach and you have to accept it. It has to be life, right? And he said, and then you're going to get fired. And he's like, so you have a choice to make. Are you going to keep your job security? Or are you going to get fired for the glory of God? And I was like, oh, oh, holy crap. That is incredibly convicting, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and it's tough to tell a uh, a 14-year-old that suffering is perhaps the deepest form of contemplation. One, because they probably have not experienced that as of yet. And two, you cannot put that into like a youth week. And so, um, at least get away with it, you know. And but that's the problem of always. Uh, there's a joke I want to make right now. I'm not going to, but I just want you all to know that there is a joke here, and I'm not doing it because I respect Nathan so much. That means a lot to me, Luke. But you, uh-huh. well, you see, you don't, you don't want to outsource as a parent. You don't want to outsource um, your responsibility as the domestic church of spiritually raising your children to the youth minister. You're supposed to be working together, uh, but the, the the onus is on you as the parent. So. Um, but that's a whole other topic. But yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a nervy place. But of like, okay, well, what what do I do with this? I only had a theology background and a theology in like a Protestant tradition, which is not going to translate very well, probably for another job in the Catholic Church. But it was just such a desire for the Eucharist that um, kind of drove that, and I I felt. You know, I and since did it joyfully. I mean, I had no idea what I was going to do. I was working at a title company for a time, and I was like, "What am I doing with this?" You know, it's where am I going? Um, but just, I, I remember I have this uh, this painting uh, within our our house. Um, it's by an artist named Ivanka Demchuk. Um, I think it's called Modern Icon on Etsy. She's got fantastic stuff. She's a Ukrainian artist, but she has this beautiful image of uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, Jesus is a little bit further behind them. One of the disciples is looking back at him, and the other one is looking further away. And I remember uh, looking at that and just thinking, you know, what would the Lord do to reorient my disappointment the same way he reoriented their disappointment? And uh, prayed on, on that image for quite some time. And it was only by happenstance that um, I stumbled on this Glen Mary job. And uh, so, Luke, you were at the Archdiocese when we met. I remembered that you had gone on to this place called Glen Mary, and I just, on a whim, found it on a, a Google search, I think. And I was like, I think I know somebody there. I wonder if you even know if it's a good job or not. And so that's when I gave you a call, then you connected me with my now boss. But I had been doing some ecumenical uh work myself just as my own kind of nonprofit before so it wasn't out of completely left left field i'd started this um this ecumenical pastors gathering where we would read together the apostles creed one minister would give uh you know a brief 20 minute talk on why that single stanza of the creed is impactful for their ministry today um, and how that's orienting their ministry and we had people from all different uh, denominations, Orthodox priest who was fantastic. He actually had us do his his church, and he had uh, his his uh, a few singers come in and like talking about like visio divina and showing us through the divine liturgy, um, and it was just fabulous. And so I had grown and, and wondered, well, what what could I maybe do with this that's helpful for the church in some way? And then with this role with Glenn Mary, it was listed initially as the director of Catholic evangelical relations. We've since changed that to the director of ecumenism because historically there's this kind of change within uh, Pentecostal communities that they they you know they have their own history and they kind of want to be seen in their own for their own personality and charism. So trying to be sensitive to that. So ended up uh, looking more into it and learning more about Glenn Mary, connecting with Luke, and then and then moved into this role now. Could you talk for a bit about just like why why that role is even at Glenn Mary in the first place? Yeah, sure. So Glen Mary Home Missioners is a, a, a Catholic um, 
uh, a religious society, a society of apostolic life, technically. It's focused on doing missions work within the rural sections of Appalachia and southeast uh, part of the U.S. And we always go into counties where there's been historically no or very little Catholic presence. And we've been around since the 30s, and so you imagine that being the Bible Belt. There was a real need for coming into an area and with and and, and partnering with the Methodists, the Baptists, the Assemblies of God uh, ministers that are in those areas, because Glen Mary has a great um, uh, missional philosophy that they don't just simply go there to start a parish; they go there to adopt the entire county, and so they have. Five category, we have five categories of mission focused on that, of, of finding what Catholics are there, starting a place, a Eucharistic community. And now this could be uh, a priest going in, a religious uh, brother going in, lay co-workers going in. We've had uh, lay families go in and co-workers who started a Eucharistic community in Texas, I believe it was Texas or Arkansas. And now, uh, this was a number of years ago, but now that's a, f- a huge parish. And it was started by these lay people and with the oversight mm-hmm. of Glen Mary. And so um, focusing on connecting with these people, telling people who know nothing about the gospel, you know, proclaiming the gospel, doing social action, working to, for the needs of the poor in those areas, connecting people with the broader universal church. So we're always connected with the bishops within the areas that we serve. And then the, the another part, uh, which is my area of focus, is, is ecumenism. And so working on the relationships that... Uh, that can help facilitate those other uh, ministries, but also, uh, you know, whether that's coming out of Jesus's own longing, John 17, that uh, his uh, disciples will be one as he and the father are one so the world will know that he sent the son. You know, that that's obviously a driver for any sense of ecumenism, but uh, a a priest named Frank, father Frank Ruff, it was the one who really started my position in the sixties. And he has just absolutely fantastic stories, um, not to just give a plug right now for my podcast, but I think I interviewed him like in my second uh, podcast, one for uh, the Glen Mary Unity. And um, it was at his house in uh, Kentucky, and there's like a rooster that was always right outside the window. And it's like captured throughout the entire like interview <laughs> of him clucking. And, but he just had some great stories about like connecting with these different Baptists, going to Southern Baptist Convention, getting, uh, you know, people noticing him and friendship growing from that. And so my role, um, even before I went into it, has focused on how does Glenn Mary take a, a national uh, leadership role in facilitating a, a deepening of unity between evangelical and Pentecostal communities. So we break that down as enhancing understanding, reducing alienation, and fostering reconciliation between the Catholic Church and these different, uh, I say communities because that could be like seminaries, it could be individual churches or whatever, and denominations. And so my focus area is, is really to, to try to start new things in that in that regard. And with my background, it's easy to translate. Um, and also coming in and recognizing that, you know, my my faith experience, which was the faith experience my parents gave me, was a beautiful faith experience. And uh, and to be able to uh, resonate with others um, on that space, but also finding a way in which we can start to imagine together. Um, Vatican II uses the language of being a pilgrim church um, moving forward together. And so how are we... Um, moving forward with these different evangelical and Pentecostal brothers and sisters and a deepening of unity. So it really attracted me within that. And also 
you know, just our connectivity with, with these groups already. So, and it's a, I'll, I'll just kind of add, um, I don't want to speak, f- uh, I don't want to, um, speak for Glenmere cause I'm not, I am not, I'm there anymore, but just having spoken with, with a lot of the Glenmarens about their experience with that, this is super important. And like one way this tends to manifest itself is you're dealing and you're in like a lot of areas where you have a lot of um, social justice issues. And I don't mean like crazy, like weird things. I, I mean like the stuff that we all care about and then like, um, and like we all think is like is important. And, and I've heard from like a lot of these guys that that's where this really pays off. Because you're able to like work with other people to bring a light or to like you know like push for things that are like very important, and you're in these small towns of where you're gonna cross paths. Like like there's just like no way you won't have to deal with the evangelical church or that like there's like um it's it's not like a kumbaya thing. It's a we're all here, and if we don't find a way to at least acknowledge that that we are um, here, this isn't gonna end well. Yeah, that's, you know, absolutely. And it's, it is helpful for some context. So like if you grow up or if you live in a, uh, the the Northeast or parts of the West coast or something like that, you might live in an area where there's New Orleans, like a ton of Catholics. We have parishes, uh, within Glen Mary that literally some of the parishioners will drive an hour one way to get to it. And that's the closest parish that they have. And it might be like 50 people and that might, and that'd be big. And so, um, there is a way in which we uh, need to recognize the opportunities for partnership um, within uh, in serving the poor, because these are areas that typically are double the um, the national average for poverty rate. Usually under 3% uh, of the population is, is Catholic, and oftentimes over 50, usually 60% of the population has no religious affiliation at all. And so there's a lot of opportunity for partnership. And a lot of times ecumenism can get uh, bunched into two areas. They call it life and works ecumenism, which is what I think a lot of people, when they think of ecumenism, they they think of, uh, you know, it's how do we, how do we partner to serve the needs of those around us? And that there's really great things within that. And uh, then there's an area of, of uh, faith and order. And so how are we looking at our substantive differences um, theologically and engaging with those? And there's a, you know, a long history uh, within that is the kind of the ebb and flow within my role, too, as being kind of focusing on, on uh, national engagement with these denominational leaders. There's kind of been a, a, a new change and a new opportunity that's coming. So uh, just kind of a brief story with that. I repeat, report to a priest, Father Aaron Westman, who's our uh, vicar general at Glen Mary. And then there's uh, the Glen Mary Ecumenical Commission, which is made up of three Catholics and three evangelicals. And they all help to kind of facilitate my work. One of those evangelicals teaches at Abilene Christian University. His name's Doug Foster, and he's a great guy. He's been involved with ecumenism for a long time. And he got me in touch with uh, Bishop Brian Farrell at the Vatican. Uh, so he's the, the secretary that oversees the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. And I've never, you know, I, I have no idea what I'm going to talk to this man about, you know, and, um, Hey Bish, what's the haps? Doug was, yeah, totally. Doug was just like, <laughs> Hey, can you, you just, you just yeah, ask him to share some stories. I was like, gosh, okay. Yeah. Fantastic. So I asked him in, in, uh, Bishop Farrell and he's a great, great guy. And, uh, just a, a very gentle Irishman. I, I asked him, I was like, you know, you've been in this role for, 15, 20 years at the Vatican, what is the biggest change you've seen in ecumenism within that time? Because 
in my mind, I'm thinking the language of ecumenical winter is something a lot of ecumenists will talk about. Like we move through uh, the softwood. Paul Murray, who's a, a fabulous Catholic uh, theologian, talks about us moving through the softwood, recognizing that our differences we we have more in common than we do different. But now we move to this area of real substantive difference, and uh, that's where the winter comes in. So what do we do now? And that's what I was thinking when I asked him that. And Bishop Farrell said, you know, for the longest time, for thousands of years, the church has talked about herself as a structure. And we define ourselves in that language. And we define ourselves against others or opposite others within that language. And he said, within the past decade or 15 years or so, um, we've started to uh, not negate or dismiss the structural language, because that's important. But we started to talk more about our experience of Jesus. And that has helped to create a new foundation in which we understand those structural differences. Uh, we see them contextually and in a different light. And uh, that was uh, really profound uh, to, to kind of learn that because that's, that's how evangelicals understand themselves as being united with other people is through their shared experience of Jesus. And so um, this idea of, of how do you kind of facilitate that? Yeah, you do want to have places in which you can get communities to partner to serve the poor. Um, we, we're doing fantastic um, exploratory dialogues with the USCCB right now, along with the Pentecostal Charismatic Churches of North America, which is, I think, like a $40 million or $40 million, $40 million person. It's getting late. I'm sorry. $40 million person uh, body of Pentecostals and, and Charismatics within North America. And we are doing exploratory uh, theological dialogues with them. Just started that. And that's a brand new thing. Um, but there's this, there's this, new opportunity of, of how do we create spaces in which we can just simply talk about our experience of Jesus, whether that's through the practice of Lexio Divina, whether through an experience of conversion where we didn't expect Christ to show up. And uh, what that does is it, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't make your ecumenism thin. It instead makes it thicker. And I actually think that a lot of times the problem with ecumenism, the reason a lot of people are interested in it, is it doesn't ask enough of us. And so um, what I try to do within my work is I try to accent our differences, not to say I'm right and you're wrong or vice versa, but to say that, as John Paul II says within ecumenism, it shouldn't be simply an exchange of ideas, but a mutual exchange of gifts. How am I going to receive gifts from a Baptist person if, for whatever reason, they're trying to act like a Catholic? I don't know what their what their personality is, what their identity is. And the same goes for me to them. I should be living out my Catholic identity in a deep way. Um, that might even point out some areas of difference, but there's a, a, a way in which we can do that does it, that helps us to move towards the kingdom of God or the church of Christ and to be continually converted um, as we move in kind of that, that pilgrim way. And so talking about our experience of Jesus within our own lives helps us to reorient ourselves to say, we're not just talking about notional arguments here. We're talking about the person of Jesus and um, helps us all to, to speak out of our own context and our own uh, traditions. So people can then receive and exchange these gifts and we'll be open to it because they'll see it as an expression of, of the church of Christ in that way. We need to slow down. We need to back off. We need to unplug from the anima technica vacua. And that is exactly what monk manuals 
can help you do. Monk Manuals is an incredible company. They emphasize that these manuals are not a productivity tool. It's meant to help people live in an integrated spiritual life and bring God into their daily action. It is built on the best practices that you'll find in productivity and psychology of human flourishing, but also the Catholic tradition of spiritual growth and wisdom. I mean, I'm telling you, this gets you to slow down. Think about your day, your week, and your month. It's it's an excellent, high-quality material. You want to have this with you. You'll take it to adoration. You'll have it with your prayer. You open it up, track habits, track all sorts of stuff. I wrote to them asking them to send it to me two months before this ad read so I could thoroughly get used to it. Now, first, I was a little bit intimidated because there's a lot going on. But once you break it down into the month, the week, and the day – and you realize this is to get human beings to slow down and actually think about where they are, unplug from the rat race and the anima technique of Aqua, and realize where they really are. And not only this, but they also have a sprout journal for children. This is great for getting kids to slow down and actually teach them a practice of reflection and solitude at an early age. I gave mine to my daughter, Cecilia, and she loves it. When do we give kids time to contemplate who they are and what the gift of their life is and will be? My favorite thing is it helps them build gratitude for the day. Now, this is written for 8 to 12-year-olds primarily to gain a better rooting that can only come from silence and reflection. Our technology is meant to capture and consume, to consume and capture but we rarely ever reflect. The Sprout Journal, the Monk Manual, these things can help you slow down, be more reflective, and be rooted truly in virtue. You're going to want to head on over to monkmanual.com, and you can use the code FOXES for up to 10% off through the end of the year. That's use the code FOXES for 10% off through the end of the year. You're going to love this. It's going to bring thoughtfulness. It's going to slow down your life. Thanks to our friends over at monkmanual.com for sponsoring this show. When I studied ecumenism at Franciscan, it was really funny because um, I said, studied under uh, a gray friar, a gray moor friar, right? So they're all involved oh, yeah. and they kind of lead it. They were an Anglican order of Franciscans who all converted when the Anglican church didn't go Catholic in the 20s. Right. And so they've been kind of leading the church's ecumenical movement in the U.S. and in Rome and stuff. They have many offices and it was fun learning from him the the heart and soul of the ecumenical movement of, um, you know, and, and how things have evolved down through the decades. And really the 20th century, it was the Catholic Church was completely outside of ecumenism. It had nothing to do with it. We're the one true church. You just need to return home was the attitude. But then you found in Vatican II with Unitatis Redensegratio and... Uh, um, Pope Paul VI in particular, you know, one of the things that he did was he gave an Anglican bishop his uh, bishop ring, right? I, th- I think it might have been the Archbishop of Canterbury. I think it was. Um, you know, there was the lifting of the mutual excommunications at the end of Vatican II of the East and the West. There was the inviting of a lot of Eastern bishops to Vatican II. In fact, one U.S. bishop remarked that he's going to leave the Catholic Church and become an Angli- and become a um, an Orthodox bishop just so he can have a better seat in uh, <laughs> in St. Peter's during <laughs> Vatican II because they get all the nice seats. And it's funny because when I started studying ecumenism, when you really understand it from not from this perspective of a false irrenicism, which is like downplaying what you are, what you believe for the sake of just getting along for 10 minutes. You know, without going full apologetics, verse slinging. When you really get into it, you realize like, okay, I don't know how to reconcile us. 
when you hold one position and I hold the opposite position. And I know there are historical reasons, political reasons, all sorts of reasons for our division. But I do know that Jesus prayed that we might be one. I know that the Catholic Church is the fullness of that oneness, but at the same time, it's not good for us to be divided, and it's not like the Catholic Church was sinless. You know, Catholic prelates and bishops were sinless during the Reformation and subsequent years down through the ages. That drove people in a lot of ways out of the church. How can you call yourself the one true church of Christ when you're acting like a bunch of pompous, greedy uh, aristocrats, right? And, and many people found that intolerable. They couldn't reconcile it emotionally, logically, whatever. And so there's the, JP2, I think, did so much to build this bridge in ter- to ecumenism. Pope Paul VI led the way. JP2 definitely followed along. But many people who got, uh, and I would definitely include myself as one, who embraced the apologetics kind of moment with the rise of Marcus Grodi's Coming Home Network and Scott Hahn and Jeff Cavins, um, and then the, the rise of Carl Keating and Catholic Answers and all of these things, like for me, it is I. It is a good day debating, you know, whether or not the Eucharist is what the Catholic Church can. Like I have fun doing that. I love defending Mary biblically and all of that stuff. But there was something that constantly kept coming back to me that I found was inexplicable, and I believe it was Ives Congar who said um, that Protestants are saved not in spite of but because of their confessions, meaning essentially that it, it is Christ alone who saves. Right, and it's Christ alone who unites himself to every believer through faith and baptism. So, as long as the Christian churches preserve that element, yes, it's not the fullness, but it's also not nothing. It's also not, you know, pure heresy. Get out of here. There is elements that need to be corrected, and you know, whatever with our Protestant brothers and sisters. But what you find is the more your heart is open to ecumenism, it's not open to error, which is what everyone who's afraid of ecumenism says. It's not open to error. It's open to the gifts that other people have, right? I mean, I love consuming content from Protestant pastors. There are so many wonderful gifts. I literally walk up to my... Francis Chan, come on our show. (laughs) I'm I'm begging you. (laughs) I mean, uh, I can't think of... uh, I mean, I can think, actually. This is is an overstatement, but uh, of a more anti-Catholic Baptist preacher than John Piper. I mean, John Piper has no love in his heart for Roman Catholicism, but I send his sermons to tons of Catholics and say, would that we could preach with such conviction? You know, like, and there's so much giftedness. There is so much giftedness that we could receive from, from our Protestant brothers and sisters and from our Orthodox brothers and sisters and from the Pentecostals. There is so much and the the close offness, you know, the idea of of the World Ecumenical Forum was okay. So we're not going to reconcile on doctrine, but at least we can work together for. Maybe we can't do missions, but we can work together for justice, and we can build up our communities, and we can do this good stuff, right? We can put our hand to the plow and do the good work, and we all agree that you know hospitals need to be built and children need to be fed. We can do that as Christians together, and they won't see us as Baptists and you know whatever. They'll see us as Christians, you know, and an unchurched world who only cares about self gratification and autonomy can't explain why these people from all these different groups are rallying around self-sacrificial love except for Christ and the cross, right? And so this idea of living a life together of shared 
you know, shared morality, shared social concerns, whatever you want to call it, ended up becoming the impetus that led to massive doctrinal realignments in Christianity. Uh, a lot of Protestant um, churches began having, and it's really funny because the progressive churches tend to align very quickly. <laughs> so you have like um, the Presbyterian Church of America or whatever one's the more liberal one. And then um, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, they signed. That's the PCUSA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They signed a joint declaration of a sharing of altars for Holy Communion and things like that. And, and the sharing of altars is kind of like the pinnacle of ecumenism. Like, okay, we've reconciled our differences to this point where you can come to communion here at my church, you know, no holds barred. But within that context, right, the, like I have developed over the years, a great love of the Orthodox church because we actually hijacked the ecumenism class because none of us really knew much of the Orthodox except why aren't they Catholic yet? You know, and that was it. And we never heard the Orthodox from the Orthodox perspective. And then we began immersing ourselves in it. And you're like, Oh, Okay, so they have an entire approach to Christianity that is very overlapping, but not yet the same as my Western Roman Latin Rite Catholic, you know, kind of perspective. And then it was from that that I got even opened up to the Eastern Catholic churches, and then that whole world that exists within Rome uh, within Catholicism. And then to finally, when we finally got on the Protestant side of things, and we were talking about ecumenism in America. You know, you, you end up saying, you end up having this conversion where you, it's a conversion. I like, kind of like what you said about um, the seeker sensitive movement where it's like, I'm not going to approach their model, but their attitude, right? Or their, their, their way of approaching ministry. I'm not going to take a, a Baptist service and import it and call it Catholic, but man, the zeal for the gospel, the word of God proclaimed over people, right? Calvin's zeal for the glory of God, Luther and his zeal for scripture. Like there are elements of this that we, that we absolutely have to receive from our Protestant brothers and sisters and to ignore it impoverishes our own Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And I, Go ahead. You are the guest. <laughs> that just crucified Luke. No, no, no. You go ahead. You go ahead. I've, I've got a very long response. That that's crucified Luke. <laughs> you are the guest. <laughs> no, it didn't. You. Well, no, and I, I, I cannot imagine my life without the Protestant Church in America. Because if I mean, I don't know how you can imagine a America with, with, with without the Protestant Church. But if I'm not exposed to elements of the Protestant Church, I don't think I'm here. And so the like when I really um like I I, I mean not, not I'm not saying I'm dead I'm saying I'm not on this podcast I don't think I'm doing this I don't think <laughs> I'd be dead I'd be bleeding under some overpass next to Sarah Connor <laughs> okay like, <sorry>. um <laughs> there is I mean I'm walking around my town the night that I'm deciding to like quit the football team like when my conversion is full on like this is it's happening there are two things that really cause that to to, to happen one was a long conversation with my dad and two was <laughs> i hate myself for this right now um a song by the insiders and so like <laughs> but that experience of christian of community at christian rock shows the good stuff not the weird stuff like very i mean i like critical to my conversion ex- experience for probably the next i would say 13 years 
like a real thing that God would like use to kind of like, like just, and I, and what I, when I get annoyed with people, when they say like, um, or when people in the Catholic church, bad mouths, uh, Protestants or say they're not a part of the real church or anything. And I think there are, I understand certain things that they are trying to say, but they talk about them in a way that God isn't moving in those, in like those, in like those churches. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, that's just not true because if that's true, then that wasn't God who was moving in my life. You know, like there's just no way that I can hear things from. I, I mean, blue like jazz. I'm. I yes. I'm. I don't know. I feel so like cliche saying this. And you are. I've read two books. Actually, I've read three books in one day. You guys, I'm ready for this. All by Protestants. Uh, okay, Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. <laughs> Damn. Nah, no, no, no. Okay, one was the one was oh, the yeah. Great Divorce. Nice. Two was and was Andrew Schwab's biography in 2004 <laughs> because you know was that called Truthless Heroes? What was that called? The guy from Project 86. No, this was called, uh, I don't remember uh, what okay. it was called. Uh, and then the third one was Blue Lake Jazz. For for those of you guys that don't know, um, if you guys all remember when we all read I'm Wild at Heart, well, Blue Lake Jazz was the oh so sens- was the oh so um, sensitive um, version of that. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> truly, 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 like changed my life. Like it was such a, it was a gift from God at the right time. And to me, that's, I think you're right, Gilbert, that's what good is. Ecumenicism is. It's this. I don't know if I'm if I'm saying that right, but it's it's. He didn't. It was awesome. It's that ability to like share, you know, and like I don't think I honestly think the church is coming to an area where we have a lot to share with the Protestant church. I think people like I'm oh, the Bishop Barron. People like I'm catching foxes. Uh, 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 different things like there's gifts that we have that sometimes by the fact that we isolate ourselves so much that we are denying them. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And uh, you know. Historically, evangelicals and Pentecostals have not engaged in the process of ecumenism. You've largely had it be Catholic, Orthodox, and then the mainline Protestants. And that whole movement of of modern ecumenism really came out of the missionary movements within Protestantism as well. And so, and that's kind of where Gray Moore's history kind of coincides with that, uh, just chronologically. And so, um, but what's interesting is, you know, we, we had so much fervor in the 60s with Vatican II and in the 70s and even up and through the 80s because we were finding, you know, as we're coming out of our silos that we're very close on a lot of things. Um, I, I'll butcher his last name, and if you guys know him, apologize to him for me. Uh, Brett Salkeed, I believe, is or Brent Salkeed. He's up in Canada. He's a theologian there. He just wrote a book called Transubstantiation, and he's making an argument as to why, like, following Calvin, Luther's, and Trent, the Council of Trent's arguments, they are more missing each other because of the polemical age rather than maybe the philosophy behind what they're saying. So baptism, Eucharistic, Eucharistic ministry is uh, a really informative document that uh, only took a few years after the ecumenical movement started with the, with the Catholic Church for, for that to come about through the World Council of Churches and whatnot. And so we, we saw, like, what I mentioned before, like the softwood, these things coming really quickly. And so you kind of felt like, hey, things are, things are changing here. But then um, there was, there's actually a particular turn um, that that came and you know for for various reasons in which uh, we started running into the hardwood of our differences. You know, one area of that is just anthropological differences. Now, women's ordination is, has another uh, issue that that came up, and so it created these spaces. Like, okay, well, no, we we can't come to full structural and sacramental unity right now 
because uh, we, we would be lying if we said we're the same. We do look very different. And it's not a gift. Or we're, we can't say that it's a gift right now. We're, we're saying that this is more of a bug. Um, what do we do with that? You see this happening. There's kind of three trends. There's one trend that's focusing on the, like the Global Christian Forum, which came out of the World Council of Churches, focusing on this sharing of our faith stories. And so I, I've mentioned that one before. Another one which came out of the World Council of Churches was just saying, hey, we, you know, let's focus on this kind of life and works ecumenism. How do we continue to partner together? We are Christians. We have are united, united on some very important things. And we're going to be living kind of in this quasi-united, but we'll be united in the eschaton kind of idea. Well, there's this new movement, uh, which I am really interested in, and um, it's uh, coming out with, with, with Paul Murray, who I mentioned before. He teaches at, uh, at Durham. Um, he introduced this idea of receptive ecumenism. And so speaking as a Catholic theologian, he pulls from Lumen Gentium uh, 8, I think it is, which talks about the Church of Christ subsisting within the Catholic Church. And it was important they use that word subsist and be, rather than saying it is the Catholic, the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church, or going on the other side of the pendulum and saying the Church of Christ is like the Catholic Church or the Catholic Church is like the Church of Christ. And, you know, you don't want to say that either because there would be a, a, implying that the church that Christ founded is lacking in some way. But then, you know, through our ecumenical experience, we can't say anymore that we are the, uh, a Catholic triumphalism. So they use this language of subsists, which implies that uh, there are gifts given, Unitatis Redens Grazia points this out as well, uh, within other traditions for bringing out the salvation of the world. And so the idea of receptive ecumenism is taking a self-critical look at your tradition and saying, hey, you know, we're we're bad at this. We need to kind of hold up our wounded hands in a way and we'll share that with our ecumenical partner and be like, you know what? We think that you actually do what we do poorly. You do it really well. Can you teach us? And now that becomes not a thing that you appropriate, that you steal from them. And it's also not something that you just wholesale receive. Otherwise you start, like we mentioned before in the earlier part of the podcast, like Catholic churches that just simply look like Protestant churches. You Instead, you receive that with dynamic integrity. And you say, how does, how does this actually work with who I am in the web of our theological uh, connections through the magisterium, through tradition and whatnot? And so this idea of receptive ecumenism has, has got some legs to it. And, and I think it's going to open up new doors because if in this idea of uh, spiritual ecumenism, which is what Vatican II really emphasizes, the idea that we pray together and that our hearts are continually being converted, if we're receiving gifts from one another, real expressions of the Church of Christ, we're becoming not simply looking like our ecumenical partner, but we're being changed by that experience as well. So our church is changing. And so that implies, a, a, I think, a very Catholic view of us growing as the church in a, a, a sanctifying way. Hmm. When you say like a thing like the like Christ Church, we don't say is the Catholic Church. Is that because like there's a part of me that kind of um, winces at that? Like, uh, but is it you know like is it in the sense? Are you is um, it saying God? works in like this Protestant church here. Like you can't um, deny the fact that God is doing things and he might even have a plan for this church. Here. Yeah. That was the impetus of why they, they didn't go with is um, the church of Christ. I mean, you, mm -hmm. you could say mm -hmm. the church of Christ is the Catholic church. 
but then you would always have to have the disclaimer. Mm. But he's also working in these other communities as well. Um, so yeah, that's, that yeah, was yeah, the yeah, reason yeah, behind yeah. it. It's not yeah. to say that, you know, obviously the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is the Church of Christ. But they went with a, a sense of subsists, which keeps that fullness. But, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which, you know, we do have that fullness, but there are ways in which those gifts have come to fuller flower within other uh, traditions. And so um, how, do we, how do we learn from that uh, in a per- properly contextualized manner? Mm, okay. And so that, that, I think, actually has more legs to it than just simply the life and works ecumenism. That's important. But as I was talking to a seminarian friend of mine, he was asking me about ecumenism. He's like, honestly, man, like, I just think, and my friends who are in seminary think that ecumenism is basically just making bologna sandwiches for the poor along with somebody that you can barely get along with. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, you know what? I appreciate the honesty with that because that's what it can feel like. But, you know, the, we need to move to not a, uh, you won't hear within the language of the, the of, of Catholics. One, you won't hear from like, say, I was talking to uh, Father Walter Kujerski. He oversees the ecumenical and interreligious efforts for the USCCB. And we were chatting, and he said, you know, ecumenism is is a search for truth. Uh, that's why we do this. And so you, you hear that regularly within ecumenical circles within the Catholic Church. And you also uh, have this sense of a recognition that um, that we're going to be changed in the process as we kind of move forward. And, and, um, we can't just simply say we're going to be a, uh, uh, we, we want to be a united church, but it doesn't need to be, um, a uniformity of what that will look like as we move forward, as we show within the Catholic church with our various rites and whatnot. And so I think actually the Catholic church is more than any other tradition, more well suited for facilitating the, the unity that Christ seeks just by its very uh, makeup and understanding of self understanding, I would yeah, I would agree with you on that. Yeah, just to just to hit a little Cardinal Ratzinger quote real quick. Um, so the the phrase comes from Lumen Gentium eight, paragraph eight, where he talks about the kingdom subsists in the Catholic Church, and uh, what Ratzinger said in two thousand was. With the expression subsistit in, in Latin, the Second Vatican Council sought to harmonize two doctrinal statements. On the one hand, that the Church of Christ, despite the divisions which exist among Christians, continues to exist fully only in the Catholic Church. And on the other hand, that outside of her structure, many elements can be found of sanctification and truth. That is, in those churches and ecclesial communities, which are not yet in full communion with the Catholic Church. But with respect, there needs to be stated that they derive their efficacy from the very fullness of grace and truth entrusted to the Catholic Church. So that's why when the church says subsists in, it it doesn't just mean is in a plain sense. It, it, it sort of does, but it doesn't entirely. Because number one, the kingdom of God is not entirely in the Catholic Church because the kingdom of God is sinless and we are filled with sinners, right? So the triumph of the kingdom of God can be found in the holiest of our members. But also when we begin to look at this and people like Cardinal Ratzinger, you know, back then and all this stuff are explaining our relations, the idea is so many people just closed themselves off to the idea of the Holy Spirit working in Protestant churches and in ecclesial uh, movements and communities and in uh, Pentecostalism. It's so much, it's so easy to roll your eyes at 
the brother who is other, right? Like that's not a part of the Catholic church. But so many Catholics have like a fear and suspicion of ecumenism, right? Uh, I don't, I don't really know. Like I remember when your people used to burn crosses in front of my church, like in, in Broken Arrow, they used to do that in my church at, at St. Anne's. Right. And so I was called, you know, a member of a cult and all this stuff growing up in, in, in Oklahoma. But when you step back from it and you realize like, all that being said, the gospel is read, Christ is proclaimed, baptism is given, souls are repenting in the name of Christ Jesus, they believe in the Trinity. There is so much overlap, and it comes from the Catholic Church, and yes, it, there's heretical elements, there's all this stuff, there's a need to purification, but that doesn't mean that the faith of the risen Lord is entirely bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And it is, the, the hardest part for me with ecumenism is struggling with in particular St. Paul in 1 Corinthians or in Galatians uh chapter 1 verse 8 where he says if anyone preaches to you another gospel even if an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel let them be anathema right let them be um let them be accursed and the struggle that i think many catholics have with ecumenism is it almost feels like we're saying well for the sake of this wider goal of unity truth doesn't matter right and what what everyone who is actually who actually gives a damn about ecumenism and their faith, they say no, it's actually the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. We are pursuing the truth, and sometimes these things that we that have separated us literally. I don't know if you know this, Luke, but there, the one of the first breakaways in the church from from of an entire church away from the Catholic Church was the Oriental Orthodox Church, and. There, there are five principal C's that separated permanently hmm. and to this day from the Catholic Church in the West and from the um, Orthodox Church that would come to be known as the, like the Greek Orthodox and whatnot from them. So they're called the Oriental Orthodox. And the Roman Catholic Church has done ecumenical movements with them uh, over their Christology. And we have signed a joint declaration on Christology with their Pope Shinodu Third. And with Mardinka the fourth overcoming the exact what we presumed was a heresy of Nestorianism and um, and uh, oh, monothelitism or monophysitism hmm. that we condemned them like you know fifteen sixteen hundred years ago and now that we sit down and we go through and we say oh no I can affirm that and I can affirm that and it's like well that's the Orthodox Catholic faith yeah. What's separating us again? You know, so it, it is fascinating how the ecumenical movement is actually readdressing what we thought were errors. You know, when a Platonist and an Aristotelian use the same Greek words but have different definitions, you can easily get a whole bunch of Christians who are Platonists and a whole bunch of Christians who are Aristotelians talking past each other. And that's exactly, that's often what you find happening in church history. And the ecumenical movement is like, oh, actually, actually, you're not as far as we thought. And to me, that's the triumph of the truth. That's the triumph of the truth over it all. Yeah, I would totally, I resonate with that so much because I, I wonder how many times people hear the word ecumenism. They just think it's some sort of like, uh, lefty uh, special interest, you know, that so, so few people do. Um, that's actually watering down what the gospel is. And you mentioned the, the spot with the Oriental churches. And, you know, I, I don't know much about this in particular, but I understand a lot of the, the, the reasons for that initial split had to do with language differences yeah. and then political differences that went on top of that, not having the, the, the same word for person uh, yeah. as uh, the Greeks did. And so, um, 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So, like a, a if you begin to to dive into ecumenism, especially on a theological level, you know anybody can do ecumenism to helping you know trying to serve the poor together, and we should do more of that. But there are just just tons of ecumenical bilateral theological documents that are uh, published every year that very few people read and engage with. And there's a lot of new learnings that come from these spaces. There was one between the Baptist World Alliance and the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. Uh, came out a little over a decade ago. The Word of God and the Life of the Church, I believe is the name of the, the document. And what these Baptists were identifying within it is that, um, you know, the way that Catholics talk about baptism, and, you know, this is, this is their thing, is um, part of an initiation, yes, but it's, uh, it's living out the baptismal life. And uh, there, were, there were new learnings for that these Baptists pointed out that such that they were encouraging other Baptists not to re-baptize uh, Catholics who were wanting to become Baptists and uh, to see that within a new light. And that could be really revolutionary for our unity if we begin to recognize one another's baptisms and how that has an ontological change within us in that way. And as the Catholic Church recognizes their baptisms and if they were to desire to come into full communion with, with the Catholic Church. Any of this talk of ecumenism being a sense of, of this watered-down uh, type of expression of theology, that, uh, th- that might be an unfortunate um, feeling. Um, I'm not going to say that there aren't ex- exhibitions of people doing that, perhaps. If we desire Christ's own desire for unity, we can't have a false unity. We need to push into the areas of truth. Um, I had a, a, a Baptist friend come and speak to our novices uh, last spring. I told him, I was like, hey, you know, just don't hold back any questions, guys. Just ask Jason. He's a, the Baptist minister. Ask him anything you want. Um, because unless we're honest with one another, we're never going to get anywhere in the in the process of our deepening of unity. Pushing more for that being the ethos of what we're doing. And you see that within the USCCB's expressions of ecumenism, the PCPCU. I think Gray Moore does great work within that. I hope us as well within that, within Glen Mary. Yeah. Um, so I, wanna, I want to... I respect your time here because you know, we're 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 running a little bit late. <laughs> respect your time. Yeah. Right. He's tired. He, he told me he had a busy night last last night. Can't show. He's, oh, a, huge, I'm sorry. he's, he's a huge party. Poor here. little watered down theology boy can't stay up till two a.m. <laughs> talking theology. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, can I play a quick game with you? Very very quick. Just a very sure. quick game. I'm talking um nine seconds. All right. I want you to tell me the years you're doing your undergrad at seminary, and I'm going to try to name what were like the big bands at that point in time that were like, you know, influencing okay, everything. Undergrad was uh, five so, through nine. Grad was 11 through 13. Ooh, okay, this is where it gets a little, ooh, okay, so gets, that's the one area for me that's not. Yeah, it's after you finished college. <laughs> Dang, because I stopped paying attention for a bit. I know. This game is ruined. I love it. No, it's not because I I picked it back up again around 2011. This is the thing. Whenever we were working together in the office, Luke would ask me something, and then I would be like, I don't know, man. I I don't have any context for what you're saying. He's like, gosh, I always forget how young you are. (laughs) Every week. Every single week. Every single week. Two years younger than you, man. I'm only like, (laughs) that's awesome. I know. (laughs) Okay, wait, wait, okay, okay. So Derek Webb would be one. Oh, my goodness, yeah. Derek mm-hmm. Webb would be one. Yeah, we were all into his house show yeah, at that yeah, point yeah. in time. Wedding uh, dress. Yeah, great song. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah, great song. Oh my, and his like I was actually I'm listening to. Um, oh gosh, I want mm, to dance. Yeah. yeah. I love that song. It's one of my favorite. Yeah, I love that. I just, that whole album, I could listen to Derek Webb preach for hours. You know, I'm like, man, you totally stopped believing all of this, but whatever. <laughs> like, I feel convicted. His wife? <laughs> or, no, no, sorry. His, his, his ex-wife, Sandra McCracken, mm. amazing artist. Mm-hmm. Best, best I think you told me that. Yeah. contemporary Christian music right now, easily. Is she still a believer? Yeah, oh, man. Yeah. What's her name? Yeah, she's uh, yeah. Sandra McCracken. Um, Sandra McCracken. Yes. She's supposed and to be super, yeah, a, a brilliant musician. Do you want to know what I'm really enjoying is, um, uh, well, I'm not doing anything right now because I'm doing uh, the X's ninety during during Advent, which is so nice because yeah, it's it way easier. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's like it's perfect for me. It's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Have you heard? Um, oh gosh, it's like oh voices. It's a guy from the classic crime and his wife. No, no, it's really good. It's um super cool. Uh, okay, wait, let me think. I uh, well, that was still kind of more like Hill songs coming to their own at that point in time, right? Yeah, yeah, they were around. Mm-hmm. They were big. We, yeah. we played their stuff to death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sorry. Sorry. I was so excited just to talk about that for like a couple minutes. This is what we talked about. David. We had David Crowder. The, the whole passion movement. Louis Giglio oh, I love was the big. Passion yeah. Come on, that's awesome. See, I I kind of checked out. I was written. I like when the passion on movement for the most part. I was like, yeah, it's fine. No, thank you. Right, indeed. What do you think indeed. is the is the most emotional praise and worship song of all time? Oh my goodness, mine. I I mean something that evokes like I mean, to me, it's the Revelation song by what's her name, Carrie yeah, Jacob or one. Carrie something. What about Oceans? Oceans, yeah. How does that go? But yeah. that song done for passion. Uh, the Passion Conference. She's in this, you know, the 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 arena in Atlanta, and they have screens everywhere, and it's just flashing black and white like strobe lights. Jesus on every screen, and she's singing, and it's just drums, the swell of music, <laughs> and everyone is screaming, just screaming. <laughs> And bearded men weeping. And the camera Amen. just pans. Amen. And then someone wrote on the YouTube comment, and this is Christian? <laughs> like, I was like, ah, it is, it is. It's euphoric. Oh, man. I you know, I was listening to Inside Out the other day, and mm. I was like, oh, that's right. I like this I song. about that one. It's, what about Jesus yeah. Freak? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I hate to say it. I do. And, like, it's... DC talk is a weird thing. Like that's true. I went through a phase in college, like so in like high school and and junior high, early part of high school, junior high, loved it, was obsessed with it, absolutely obsessed. College very much against it. Early twenties, saw them for what they were and accepted it, which is just like <laughs> they're not a boy band, but they're just like uh, they're like they're like these songs are good. They're they're good songs. They're they're phenomenally talented. They're like a good youth group rock band. And they were like a rapper. Like, like but like some of their songs are not contradictory things. They're incredibly talented. They're I like know. a really good youth group rock band. <laughs> no, but like, but like they have. I mean, like I think um, Kevin Max has an insanely good voice, yeah. as does Michael Tate. And like, if you look at what Toby Mac just the son. I mean, he has written and made some really good stuff mm-hmm. that I don't particularly care for anymore, for the most part. But I'm still like, I could like. 
I didn't do that. Yeah, but you like you no need one to else go did for the deep tracks. Not with them, but with in praise and worship music. Like if you look at, and I don't know if you guys want to know any of these people, Ryan Flanagan, that guy is an, a phenomenal um, uh, hymn writer. Um, Porter's Gate Worship, uh, they put out. They just put out a new Advent record They're recently. Good. I don't know them. Uh, Isaac Wardell, Sandra McCracken, her work. Um, so yeah, there's there's like the, what you think of when you think of the praise and worship movement, and then there's uh, people who are putting out you know quality stuff too continually. So, um, but yeah, those were more of the stuff that we spent time with. The stuff with Hillsong, I just didn't have an amp that big. You know, I couldn't really. I didn't have the headroom, and <laughs> we couldn't do arena rock where we were. So just uh, you know, context. I got a. I ha- I have a playlist uh, called My Christian Rock is Better Than Your Than Your Christian Rock. I just made it the other day. And it's like the <laughs> random stuff that I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. I can hold up. So it's like, you may not even know who these bands are. It's like Training for uh, Utopia, Stave Saker, Ace of oh, Troubleshooter, like very much mid to late 90s, early aughts. Yes. The like, not your MXPX or like your Five Irons, but like the step below that. Yes. Like Starfire over 59. Different things. Who I I think Starflyer is one. I mean, like hands down, one of the better bands of the past 20, 30 years. Anywhere, they're so good. Mm. Um, they're kind of like a Pedro of the Lion kind of band. Where like you'll if mm. you read some certain things, like with bands like on the Death Cab, they'll talk about them as like an influence. Yeah, because they're just that that talented. But uh, I love Pedro the Lion. It's it's funny how much of that stuff actually holds yeah. up over over time. Like some of that stuff is really like you listen to. Um, who else was on that list? I forget. Um, anyways, yeah, sorry. I could, I could keep going. I, I'm like, let me talk about this. Someone please let me talk about this. <laughs> well, again, I'm living into what you want me to be, which is your, your evangelical hipster exactly. friend. Yeah. Exactly. I can, I can be that for you. That's okay. Exactly. I'm like, I need someone to, <laughs> I've had these conversations <laughs> online for 20 years and never face to face with anyone. <laughs> it's all it used to be was in. Sorry, I'm go ahead, Gilmer. In 2007, I was a youth minister, and there was this hilarious YouTube video that came out called Youth Mini Stars. Youth Mini Stars. And it could very well have been Jonathan Alexander, my buddy and my roommate at the time, as the actor. <laughs> and it was obviously a mega church with an with AV budget that was more than just, you know, $8. Um, and the guy made this song, and he's talking about driving in the church van. And he goes, track one, Chris Tomlin. Track two, Chris Tomlin. Track three, Hillsong United. Track four, Chris Tomlin. (laughs) It was so funny because it's like, oh, no, everything you have, we are imitating. Okay. We might have Matt Marr, uh, you know, on track two instead of Chris Tomlin, but we definitely have him on one and four. Um, And it's just so funny, like, how the culture just, yeah, there is a whole youth group, youth ministry culture out there that we all Catholic or not we all kind of drank from the same Kool-Aid it's all the it, yeah yeah everyone's got a friend who has a forearm tat- tattoo of some religious <laughs> image so. shows you've been somewhere so grandpa <laughs> used to have a, an American yeah. Eagle hey, we uh, all have like a crown of thorns or something <laughs> whatever it is it's great <laughs> it is. hey um <laughs> hey Nathan it's been very very fun to like have you um, on I've uh, I wanted to have you on for a while. I, I tried. I actually tried to get you on a, a couple times, and Gomer couldn't do it. It was me and like and um, other people. Yeah. But uh, so I'm glad this finally no, worked out. No, I appreciate out. it. And um, yeah, just the uh, the chance to get to talk to you guys both about this. And um, yeah, with the with the ministry, I'd, I'd be 
remiss if I didn't mention it. So uh, glenmaryunity.org is the website to kind of follow more of our work. Glenmary Home Missioners, obviously, within our mission's work. And then also a podcast yeah. with uh, Glenmary Unity on uh, whatever the Spotify or Apple Music and whatnot. Um, did an interview with uh, Rusty Reno recently, which was a lot of fun, and doing one with uh, uh, Bishop Farrell pretty soon. And, and so it's, it's just neat to kind of learn from these people and hear their experience of ecumenism because it's, it's, it's not something that's largely discussed, um, at least within uh, yeah. a congregational level or, or media level. I have uh, all this stuff already um, clickety-clacked into the show notes. So um, I got the direct link to the podcast and to... Uh, glimmerunity.org and all that good stuff so people will be able to find you rather easily on the podcast very good well I am I'm very glad that you are on this podcast I'm very glad that like you are I'm in my life uh, so thanks for being here it's fun thanks for being my friend of course yes and thank you for this time I am I'm proud to be your friend and this has been great so thanks guys <laughs> yikes not even I say thanks. that thanks <laughs> Special thanks to our sponsors, BetterHelp, Monk Manual, and Redacted. Oh, yeah.